So this morning, we want to wrap up our time beginning in January that we've committed as a church to being in the Gospel of Mark. And at the end of today, if you've been faithfully a part of worshiping together with us since January, this is, might be a really cool thing for you. you. get to pat yourself on the back. You just read an entire book of the Bible. You just did it. And so this hopefully is an accomplishment for you. This may be something that you've never done before. Maybe this is kind of just the right step in the right direction of what typically can be a very intimidating thing to say, yes, let's read the entirety of this book. But you've done it. You have, hopefully, if you've been hanging around with us for the last several months, you've been digging through it. If not, keep hanging around. We'll do this again, and we'll knock out another book. Hopefully, beginning to create in us a kind of discipline for the Word of God, maybe stretching our attention span and stretching our own imagination as we read it together. So I want to wrap up our time in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 9, reading all the way to the end, maybe summarizing and hopefully tying a bow nicely on the entirety of our time in the Gospel of Mark. So let's finish this good news that Mark tells us, beginning in chapter 16, verse 9. Now when he, that is Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This wraps up our time in the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to see as we wrap up our time in this Gospel that the Gospel ends with mission. Therefore, the result of the Gospel, the good news, is proclamation. After all, it's good news. It's news. It's a message to be shared. So here's where we find, hopefully, a kind of a a thesis for us to wrap our heads around and see how this unfolds at the very end. The gospel is good news, we share it. This is, hopefully, I want to spend the next little bit of time kind of showing you how this plays out for us, but I want to argue also that you already know how to do this. You are incapable, I would argue, of keeping a secret of anything important. 
You are untrustworthy when it comes to keeping a secret of anything important. When you find out something you ought to know and it's really powerful, it burns a hole inside of you and you can't keep it a secret. So therefore, the same thing is true. Mark wants us to know this is good news. Tell everybody. And I want to show you maybe piece by piece the ways in which the end of this chapter summarizes for us what it is that we now know and what it is that we're supposed to do. The gospel, quite literally, is good news. So I want to hopefully kind of show you the definition of what we would say the evangelism, preaching the gospel, these words go hand in hand, are a difficult thing for us to kind of translate because the word gospel, euangelion or evangelion that shows up in the New Testament also has a verb form. Now we talked about this when we talked about faith. The word faith and believe in the New Testament are the same word. Uh, but it's difficult for us to like to faith something like you faithed that 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 doesn't work as well that we kind of come up with a new concept a new word to communicate it the same thing is true of preaching the gospel we are gospeling and that's what he proclaims us or he encourages us to do to to go gospeling to be gospeling as a gospel people shaped by the good news go good newsing gospel sharing. So literally the word that you'll hear used, a word that was kind of made uh, popular probably about 600 years ago, the word evangelism is the preaching according to Webster, the preaching or promulgation that's expounding, exposing of the gospel. That is missionary zeal, purpose, or activity. So the end of the good news of Jesus is a command to share it. It's good news. It's relating something that God has done. Notice, it is not necessarily telling something that people ought to do. It isn't necessarily saying, stop doing this and start doing this. Instead, good news is a declaration of something that's already happened. So for us, we have a great deal of encouragement here that we get to tell the good news. You don't have to save the world or convince the world of its problems and give it a solution. You get the opportunity to tell the world that the solution's already been laid out for us. Jesus has already done this. You get to just declare, look what I saw, look what's happened, look what I now know. But the way that this book ends, I hope, will teach us a little bit about the way we can trust the Word of God, the way that we can trust the Bible, and that the way that we can understand what it is the Bible is trying to accomplish. So we're not only ending on mission, but I want to end by encouraging what the, about what the Bible says. So as we began reading, for those of you who have one of the paperback Bibles that was handed out to you, um, this for us, we use an ESV. Uh, it's the English Standard Version. Uh, there is no perfect translation of the Bible, but they're all really good at certain things. And so for us, we think that the ESV is kind of the best combination of being very literal and faithful to the original translation, but also being very readable. So you might have a translation like the NIV or the New Living Translation, uh, but it's it's going to be much more readable and accessible. It will make more sense in a common vernacular of English, but it may not give you exactly what the original text was saying. Versus some of you, if you're a real scholar here, you have an NASB. If you have a New American Standard Bible, this is a very wooden or literal translation of the Bible, but it makes almost no sense in English. Okay? So for us, the ESV is a really happy combination. It gives us a pretty good access into the text and uses what we think are the most reliable manuscripts. Now, if you have an ESV, you'll see right before verse 9, there's a little parenthetical comment. If you don't, then I, here's where I get to sell it to you. I'm biased, like, 
I know you have a living translation, and I know it feels like you'll be having a dead translation if you put it down, but you'll get some really cool stuff here by the text, starting in, in between verse 8 and 9. It says that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verse 9 through 20. So if you don't have that, here's what this simply means, that the end of the book of Mark for some of the earliest, most reliable manuscripts was verse 8. It just dropped off. It stops. And the end, we believe, was probably added later, either by a follower of Peter, a follower of Mark, one of his people, maybe someone else. And the way that they ended the Gospel of Mark is they took bits and pieces from the three other more reliable manuscripts, namely Matthew, Luke, and John, and patched together an ending for Mark. Now, there are lots of different things. I'm going to put some of you to sleep for a minute here, and some of you are going to nerd out on what I'm about to give you, okay? Um, so I just, I apologize. I love you both, but here we go. Okay, so, so the end of this book is patched together from pieces of other Gospels because at this particular juncture, the book comes to an end. Now, there's a lot of different arguments to explain exactly why that happened. My favorite is the most, most reasonable, I guess. They said that the last book of the Codex probably was worn off and destroyed. Like in the same way that your cover probably wears out in a book that you open and close and carry around often, so also, also maybe the end of the Gospel of Mark was laid down just one too many times on one too many bad things, spilled their coffee, dropped the codex on top of it. That's the end of the last page of Mark. Now we think that Matthew seems to borrow from most of the information from the last chapter. So Matthew 28, if you look at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, it would look almost identical to the end of Mark's gospel, namely Mark chapter 16, except for this abrupt ending in verse 8. And then Matthew continues by giving us what we'll come to in a second here, the Great Commission, while Mark ends on a conjunction. So it's a post-positive conjunction that ends at the end of verse 8. Gar, for. Did you notice that last phrase? It says, for they were afraid. In the Greek, the phrase, they were afraid, is one word. And there's a post-positive conjunction that ends the chapter, for. So literally it says, they were afraid, for. So there's this, again, I'm not, I'm not just showing off my Greek here. I want you to see there's a reason why, why they believe the, the gospel ended here or it was abruptly destroyed after this. It ends with a post-positive conjunction. It'd be like reading a novel and it ended on some sort of a preposition, some sort of a, 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 con, a, a connecting word. And one of two things is either going on. Either that book wants to communicate something to you that seems to be implied and will carry out later, or they just stopped reading or stopped writing the book. A lot of ways we can explain this. One of them could be that Mark was dead by the time that he wanted to finish this book. By the time he wrote this in Rome, remember this is for Roman Christians who spoke Greek in Rome, right before Nero started killing everybody who called themselves a Christian. And it is highly believable that Mark was one of the people killed and he didn't get a chance to finish it. Or what I think is more likely, it was destroyed, cut off, or intentionally sabotaged by others. Because what we find is that Matthew relies heavily, almost word for word, on what Mark tells us but he finishes the story, saying that not only does Jesus predict that he will arrive and appear to people, and not only, does pe not only do people say that he sees them, but then, then there's this appearance narrative that comes up in Luke and Mark and John. Mark doesn't have that. Instead, it literally ends right now on, they were afraid. 
Now, one of two things are going on here, and you get to pick. We don't really know, and we never will know. But I think they're both pretty powerful. On one hand, if Mark intentionally left it hanging, he was doing something that was rare for writers of any kind of literature at this particular time, particularly historical literature. But it kind of seems like Mark, doesn't it? Remember Mark? He's the fast-paced guy. This is the shortest gospel, and he's like just, just runs from one piece to the next. And in chapter 8, 9, and 10, he says, look, Jesus is going to rise again. Jesus is going to rise again. Jesus is going to rise again. And for the last two chapters, he's told us how amazing it is that the people who should have known that Jesus was going to rise again didn't think Jesus was going to actually rise again. So it would be a cool, ironic ending for, Jesus, for Mark to end the gospel of like, and people said he was, he was alive, and people said he was alive. That's it. Drop the mic. Walk away. For that then, we think that the, what I would argue and what I think you'll see is that means that the ending of Mark is not necessarily about some emotional or sensational experience to following Jesus. It's about faith and self-sacrificing discipleship to lay down your life to follow him. This is important because most of us, I, I think we would argue, it's like for, for some, for, maybe for, for most of us, maybe for some of us, like coming to Christ is this big sensational experience. And just like we saw when he tells us about the, the, the crucifixion narrative, Mark doesn't do that, right? If you watch Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, it's all about the violence, the blood, and the gore and gruesome nature of the crucifixion. When Mark tells us about the crucifixion, he doesn't tell any of that, does he? He talks about the betrayal. He talks about the abandonment. He talks about the people who should have been there. He talks about the substitutionary nature of Christ dying literally for Barabbas and being abandoned literally for us. So maybe Mark is trying to push back on some of you who wish you could have some sort of sensational experience. And here's what I would argue from the case of Mark ending the book here. That's not what this is about. Jesus doesn't want you to worship your emotions. Jesus doesn't want you to follow your emotional highs. He wants you to follow him. In fact, Jesus is most beautiful. <laughs> He's most worth treasuring when your emotions are at their lowest. Jesus is most reassuring when everything's falling apart but him. When everyone's abandoned you and you see Jesus has not, that's what's beautiful. So Mark is probably doing that. And even if there was an ending that we lost here, Mark probably did it abruptly. Wouldn't you agree? Probably said immediately another two times, like he said more than 40 times throughout the gospel. The other alternative I said to you is that it was destroyed, vandalized. One of the things that the earliest powers that be tried to do to destroy the christian belief was not only killing christians but destroying every kind of paraphernalia every kind of literature every kind of propaganda that they could get and this is where we get to be excited about the bible that we now have there are people who have bled and died so that you could be sitting here with your leather-bound copy or your digital iPhone version of this good news. There, there are people that are no longer with us that suffered great pains so that we would have access to this good news. Did you know that even has happened in the last 500 years? Over 170 people died during the Protestant Reformation, during who, the person we know as Bloody Mary, because they wanted to translate the Bible into, guess what? English. 
and they were killed for getting God's word into your hands. So this is a beautiful thing. The fact that we have this and the fact that we have such reliable collaboration between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is beautiful. So here's a little lesson on how the canon, the Bible you're now holding, was formed. People tried to destroy it. Possibly the end of Mark was something that existed and the Romans came along and destroyed it and got rid of it. They tried to get rid of it as propaganda. But if they didn't, then there's really amazing things that, isn't it awesome that whatever they tried to do to destroy Mark, they didn't manage to succeed at doing with Matthew, Luke, and John. And there is, in the last few centuries, in the last three to 5,000 years, there is no better corroborated story There's no greater collaboration and agreement on an eyewitness testimony about a person than you have in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to show this to you, I want to show you that even if the last bit of Mark was added later to explain or cover up or or kind of compensate for this drop-off ending of Mark, it, it, it is, it's beautifully corroborate, collaborated on, corroborate, I'm making up words as we speak, Elijah, right? So, so the last few verses of this gospel of Mark are agreed upon and seem to be in, in perfect agreement with these other gospels. And I want to show you, walk through each of these particular verses, show you where they come from in the other gospels so you can rely upon them, believe them, and then we're going to end talking about how we end in mission. So here we go. It's certain that this very ending here among most scholars that it's gone. This, the, the original ending doesn't exist. Now, this is a cool thing because there are other, other bits and pieces that we find in the New Testament that were originally argued about but then later confirmed because they internally agree with one another. But there are a bunch of others that aren't. For instance, in your, in your book, whatever Bible you have, you don't have the Gospel of Thomas, you don't have the Gospel of Mary, you don't have the Gospel of Peter, you don't have the Gospel of Jesus. These are all different kinds of what we believe are Gnostic Gospels that came around later that didn't agree with the original, most reliable, most historic manuscripts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you can find them. I encourage you, look them up. Read them. Read these first. Don't waste your time on those other. Read these first. But then you'll see why it is that those were eliminated. They didn't theologically or historically add up or agree with the most reliable text. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's what makes this last little bit here Nothing to shake our heads at or nothing to worry about. The Gospel of Mark ends in a perfect way. So let's just walk through some of these things here. In verse 9 through 11, in all four Gospels, Mary Magdalene's name is found. And she's meant to be believed as one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. This is in perfect agreement across all four. Now, what we think came probably later here still was probably added because of what they already believed. In fact, what happens, did you catch that? It says they rose early on the first day of the week. That's almost word for word, verbatim, the same as the other, other Gospels. This belief in the bodily resurrection is corroborated for in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Or excuse me, if has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is now in vain. This is, this is something that it is an agreement across the Gospels. But then there's something else here that we don't know about from the Gospel of Mark, but we know from Luke 8 too. Luke chapter 8 says that there were some women who were healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, her report to the mournful disciples was such as this in Luke 8 too. So this picture of Mary who had been healed and 
demons had been cast out of her. It comes right out of the Gospel of Luke. Let's keep going. Verse 10 records the grief of Peter. This is nothing new. Um, this is something we find in other places. We see it in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, but we also see it in the Gospel of John. Verse 12 and 13, there's a second appearance that's to two travelers. And there's this summary of the story, if you want to, in Luke verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 13 through 15. On the road to Emmaus. So whatever we believe about the end of Mark here probably agrees almost specifically and verbatim with Luke chapter 24. The note about appearing in different form explains even why Jesus was not originally recognized in the story by the people walking to them, with them. Verse 15, it says that the great commission that we also find in Matthew chapter 28 is reconstructed in different words right here in the Gospel of Mark. And the end of the Gospel is in mission. Matthew 28 puts it this way, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke chapter 20, verb, 24, beginning in verse 45, says it this way, Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You now are witnesses to these things. The same language of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. John chapter 20 says the Great Commission this way. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, even though they were locked in the room, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Nothing like a dead guy showing up and telling you to calm down, right? Chill. Don't worry. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. No, really, guys, calm down. No, really, chill out. It's cool. As the Father has sent me, even so I am now sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any sins, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, then it will be withheld. You get it? So even what Mark is telling us in, in verse 15 seems to be in agreement with the other Gospels. Verse 16, this formulaic wording in verse 16 reflects the missionary preaching and the outreach of the early church. Namely, that faith that was followed by and accompanied by baptism was a sign of being in this new covenant community brought to us by faith. This is in Acts chapter 2, it's in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 16. And John chapter 3 and John 20 echo the same words, that the separation from this community, this covenant by faith, is for those who do not believe and are not condemned. Verse 17 and 18, according to these verses, the consequences of salvation is not only assurance and peace, but they're also signs of power including expulsion of demons, speaking in tongues, healing of the ill, laying on of hands, and the preservation of harm by handling snakes and even drinking poison. Now, here's where I will put in something that you need to know. The only one of these things that isn't confirmed later in the New Testament is the drinking of poison. And our best guess is that Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, he speaks of Justus Barsabbas. 
You remember him? He was in Acts chapter 1. When we were in Acts chapter 1 together, he was the guy who was later, as they cast lots to replace the Judas who had left, they wanted to replace this apostle. Barsabbas was one of those. And, and Eusebius tells us that later he drank poison and he didn't die. So that's probably where we got this. Which means that this was probably this ending to Mark was probably written about 40 to 50 to 60 years after the original ending. The rest of these things, the demons, the healing, are all confirmed for the rest of the New Testament. They all have everything that they say will happen happens exactly like it says it will. The only exception would be the poison. My own personal laughable anecdote on this one. There was probably a cult that was related to drinking this poison. And I don't know about you, but typically cults built around building, um, like drinking poison don't last very long. So there's probably a good reason why we don't know about this. That, that's kind of a short-lived cult. It's just me making an observation. If your belief in Jesus involves drinking poison, okay, good luck. You won't have a long story. But the end of Acts tells us how when Paul was sharing the gospel after being shipwrecked, he was bitten by a poisonous snake and he picked it up, threw it off of him like it was nothing and went about working, serving, and sharing the gospel. And the people thought he was God because of it. Now, have these been abused since then? Absolutely. We would say that we are no longer apostles. If you feel like you have the gift of apostleship, if you, have, if you feel like you have the ability to cast out demons, if you feel like you have the ability to, to heal, that's awesome. That's kind of a gift you don't like accidentally, you know, accidentally ignore. Um, if you have that gift, if you find yourself praying for people and they get healed, let's hang out this week and let's go put uh, Avera and, and let's go put uh, Sanford out of business, right? Let's just walk the halls and let your gift work. Now, we would say that the, the gift of apostleship that unfolds here isn't necessarily alive and active, but instead now the Holy Spirit works in the same way to do the same kind of healing through the declaration of the gospel and the believing of the gospel. That's why when Jesus says even greater things than on this list you will see happen because of the Spirit. The Spirit will do something in you when you share the gospel that is even greater than the ability to survive poison, poisonous snakes, and heal and cast out demons. So you can see here in verse 19 and 20, it wraps up with an ascension. This is a combination of Acts chapter 1 verse 9 and even Psalm 110, which we've heard about before that Jesus will ascend and he's now at the right hand of God. So I want you to see that even though, some of you can come back awake now, okay? You can come back awake, all right? Even though this is a, a, a part of the scripture that we know is probably not the most reliable, each little bit is confirmed by the scripture elsewhere, both theologically and historically, of course, except the one exception, drinking poison, which we think Eusebius tells us is Barsabbas. Again, just let's be on the safe side. Unless you really feel the Spirit calling you to do it, don't drink poison thinking that will prove that Jesus is alive. Just don't do it. However, each and every single detail of the end of this book, especially the command to mission to preach this good news, is confirmed in all of the other Gospels and is confirmed throughout the New Testament. In fact, you and I are here in an elementary school of all places because this has happened the gospel the good news has changed lives from where this started across an ocean halfway across a continent to where now here in the middle of south dakota we are celebrating this good news this has happened so what does that mean for us 
I think what it means is this, that the gospel is a call to mission. But unfortunately, we do not. It's a call to be on a mission, but unfortunately, we regularly are not. I'm going to give you a couple of different statistics. This will be especially for those of you, if you would call yourself a believer, a Christian in this room, I I, I want to challenge you with this. If you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I want you to begin to kind of peer into what it is that we believe that God has called us to do. And this is what we find out. And a couple of different studies collaborate together in this one. Here's what we find out. That 85% of all people who identify themselves as believers agree that they have a responsibility to share the gospel with unbelievers. This is especially high amongst people age 18 to 29. Another 70% of those same people feel comfortable sharing their faith. Here's the catch. Less than 25% of those people who know they're supposed to and think they feel comfortable in doing it actually do it. 27% of them intentionally build relationships with the opportunity to share the gospel with unbelievers. So here's what that means. I probably don't have to convince you what Mark is telling you, that you are now on a mission to share the gospel. It says that the majority of you who would call yourselves believers already think this. It's just that less than one out of four of you actually do it. In another study where people identified not as believers, but as church attenders, it says that over three quarters of these churchgoers say that they would feel comfortable in their ability to effectively communicate the gospel. But 12% say that they don't feel comfortable telling the gospel to someone who doesn't believe it. Did you catch that? Again, three-fourths of people who say they go to church. Never mind, again, that you know this. The church is not a place that you can go. It's a people to which you can belong. We're not called to go to church. We're called to belong and be the church. However, people who even say that they belong, three-fourths of them would say, yeah, that's me. So that means three-fourths of you who made it to Rosa Parks Elementary this morning, right, you would agree. You'd go, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to share the gospel. But 12% of you likely actually do it. So people are talking themselves out of their obligation to share this good news. So for the rest of our time, I want to hopefully exalt Christ in such a way and maybe give you some things that will help. There are obstacles that I believe we need to identify. There are biblical principles for mission. Namely, that God is doing this, and just like Jesus was sent to save, we have now been sent with a mandate to share this good news. This is excellent. This ought to cause you to relax, as you'll hear me say, you don't have to save the world. You just get to tell the world about who already saved it. You are a mailman. So here's what I think we see as obstacles to mission. One of the greatest obstacles to mission, and I think there are a few here, is that we currently live in a culture that believes happy endings are an inferior form of art. We're one of the first generations to exist in the history of literature to find happy endings, albeit even incredibly happy endings, to be unsatisfying. One of the first generations. Right? The joke is that Steven Spielberg never won any, any Academy Awards until he started Uh, even though some of his best movies have happy endings, he didn't start winning awards until he started making movies that have terrible endings. This is our story. Like, even though we value things like the Lord of the Rings and think it's epic and amazing, we tend to spend more of our time relating to stories that have awful endings. You don't believe me? How on earth is there a phrase that exists in our generation that says something is too good to be true? 
Think about that. Just think of the underlying presuppositions. Think about the assumptions you bring to the table when you look at something that's so incredibly good and find yourself skeptical of it. So get this. We, we are called to tell a story like Mark that ends with a radically and infinitely and eternally good ending. This happy ending is joy forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And our world currently is built around this belief and assumption that that makes it incredible. So recognize that we are now in a culture that really believe that things are too good to be true. Brokenness of humanity makes bad endings more believable. And we are so dipped, I think, deeply in our own depression and hopelessness that this good news of Jesus seems unbelievable. This is the first generation to simply embrace that brokenness is the way that it is and that there is no hope. So know this, this is going to be an obstacle. You will only win the affections of people enough to hear this good news if you begin to undermine this assumption, this prevailing assumption, that if something is really good, it must be fake. I would add, may that be a prayer for us, right? God help us living in a world where if something's really good, people are immediately skeptical that they're about to be scammed. The second thing I think we see as an obstacle for uh, completing this mission, is that we have inherited religious forms that now obscure the gospel. Religiosity and current views of religion, in fact, obscure the gospel. They actually make the gospel less clear. I alluded to this early, or earlier, but, but what really exists in most of what civil religion is, the, the common belief, when I say civil religion, I mean like, like corporately and politically, we kind of agree in a religion a nebulous belief in something bigger. But when, it, when we try to nail it down, what we find out, it's actually a form of legalism or moralism. And so the greatest unpardonable sin is like, don't go to jail, uh, don't get in trouble, pay your taxes. Um, it's probably one of the, one of, you know, like, the, like do the things you're supposed to do. Like honor the flag, honor the country, honor veterans. Like these are the kind of things that if you step on these toes, you'll make people angry. That's the civil religion that exists. But it, it, it's a form of moralism a form of legalism, and it has even crept into the church. God help us. Have you, have you come encounter with this? I've been this before, right? Have you ever been this? Been the Christian that you're like, hmm, you better get all that cleaned up. You better stop doing that. As if our job in the world is somehow to fix, like, I don't know, the way people dress, act, talk, and live. Man, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But this is where we live. And now, religiosity this pharisaical nature of civil religion that imposes these kinds of practices on people actually obscures the good news of Jesus. It focuses more clearly on what we have to do and therefore obscures what it is that Jesus has done. Make, make no mistake about it, what most people call Christianity is a form of good advice, it's a form of legalism and moralism that tells you things that you ought to do, namely, unfortunately, pointing away from the finished work that Jesus has now done. So you, if you're maybe one of these obstacles, you are not a Christian because of anything that you have done. In fact, you are an unbeliever, a rebel, a, a person who is dead in their sin because of the things that you have done. You are only a child of God because of what He has done. He's done. It's finished. So this means that speaking to the church even involves a great deal of skepticism. And belonging to the church sometimes is a painful and mechanical and obligatory thing. And instead of the people that celebrate how good God is, we're the people who just, I don't know, have destroyed one another. 
So my encouragement to you, I've played on some bad teams. That doesn't mean that the game is bad. I've been on some awful teams. That doesn't mean that the game is bad. The third one I think we find here is this. An obstacle to mission is the cultural influences of consumerism, materialism, individualism, tribalism, nominalism, just to name a few. I've picked these as kind of the most prevalent and visible for us. So when I say consumerism, what I mean is that we find identity by what we consume. Right? We find our identity in the things that we buy, purchase, or consume. Now, this may not affect you. Uh, it affects all of us differently, but for me, it looks like this. I, I take a great deal of joy about buying new things. Like, I love new stuff. It's really cool. And not only that, but I sometimes find my identity in the new stuff, and I actually think it makes me better. My, the worst places to experience this is Shields. Guys will relate to this. You go to Shields, and like, there's something inside of you that's like, when I buy this new golf club, I'm going to be a better golfer. That's a lie. But inside, you kind of have this false sense of optimism, don't you? Until you take the new thing out there, and you're like, I still am terrible. Right? Have you, have you ever done this? Like, you buy a new gun, all of a sudden you think you're going to be a better, better shot. You buy, Shields is the worst. Don't go there, man. This, this, is, this is where you see this. Like, if you buy a new, like, you buy a new cooler, you're going to be a better hiker or camper. You're like, no, you're still out of shape. Right? Like, like you get what I'm saying? Like, this, this is kind of our belief. I buy new shoes, I'm going to be able to dunk a basketball. No, no. Just because the guy on the shoe is dunking a basketball does not mean that you can. But something inside of us starts to believe it. That's consumerism. That's a belief that what you consume actually gives you identity. Okay, so maybe for some of you it's not sporting goods like it is me, but it's something else. And you genuinely believe the things that you buy make you better. Friends, this is especially important. Fathers, mothers hear this on Father's Day. You know this feeling, right? When you buy something at Babies R Us or Toys R Us, and inside you feel like it makes you a better parent. We all know the falsehood of that, don't we? But there's this feeling inside, isn't it? There's this feeling, like if I buy the better car seat, I'm doing better. If I buy the more natural, organic, God help us, I don't want to go too far in here, I don't want to step on any toes, I love you. But, like, but like there's this feeling, if you purchase this thing for your kid, you're a better parent. And the good news is now obscured by that belief. Friend, you are in Christ because He has purchased you. He has paid for you. Don't obscure that with the things that you now find identity in that you purchase. This has effects for the church because it even begins to mean that right now many of you are thinking as you look at me like a good consumer, what can you really do for me? Entertain me. Make me feel good about myself. As if the church is like Target or Taco Bell rather than who is God and therefore now who am I? materialism i would say that if consumerism is finding identity in what you purchase and how you consume it materialism would be like finding your identity in what you own like some of you really think you're better off because your car is nicer than everyone else's you really think you're better and you look down at people that don't dress as nice as you they don't take good as care of you and if you're not careful you will really believe that what you own makes you better individualism this one's easy this is our you're a princess you're a snowflake just like everyone else. But we have been sold a bill of good that you are individually great. You haven't accomplished anything, but you're special anyway. right? You haven't actually earned your fame, but you feel entitled to it. People should listen to what you say, even though you haven't really earned it. Like You don't have any advanced degrees, but you should be an expert in this area. Ever been this, been this way? Seen this one? The next one is tribalism, this belief that b- belonging is more important than, than being. 
Nominalism, I would say, is a big form. It's kind of a byproduct of individualism, maybe a subpoint of individualism. It's the, it's the babe the pig thing. That like regardless of what actually exists in reality, you're able to self-identify as something that's not true. This shows up in superficial ways in which we say something like no offense and then say something offensive. And we, we're, in that moment, we're self-identifying as not offensive. Hey, no offense. And then all of a sudden, we become very offensive. But in our mind, we have self-identified as a nice person. And so therefore, whatever we say won't contradict it. And the reality of being offensive somehow doesn't actually dig into the brokenness of our offensive nature. Because we said, no offense. And we'll say things like, I'm not one to complain, but, oh, you're a liar. You probably complain all the time, right? And beware of anyone who says this, I'm, re- I'm a really good person. Whenever you say, I'm a really good person, it's always before or after you've done something that a really bad person would do. And that is actually good news. Because when you self-identify as these things, you're distancing yourself from the reality that is true for us in Jesus. How about you just say, I'm offensive. God help me. I complain a lot. I need God's mercy. I'm a bad person. Do you see how this alternate view of self-identification and individualism, this nominalism, calling yourself a Christian, even though you don't identify in any meaningful way that way, actually undermines the gospel? And the result is that even though I could tell you what the Bible says, there's this assumption that I'm really the only one who believes it. The other thing I think we see is this extremely high view of self, a high view of self and a low view of sin. If you find yourself justifying your sin, then what you're saying is Jesus is not that big a deal. If you find yourself, even as, did you see in the text there, it says that if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. And if you find yourself saying, that's not fair, well, that's why we're on mission. If you find yourself thinking, oh, it's awful that people, wait, people are going to be condemned because they don't believe in Jesus? And if you find yourself offended by that, good. It's meant to be an irksome motivator to share the gospel. One of the last things I think we also see is that we currently exist in a culture that's built on personal promotion rather than self-sacrifice. The gospel is the sacrifice and laying down of self. We live in a culture in which now we believe in personal promotion. Social media is the most, it's, it's, it's the biggest culprit. It's the place where this is the most visible and where we now value personal promotion versus personal relationship. And you will subconsciously or consciously go to great efforts to look a certain way, even though you know that's not you. Here's the good news. Gospel people, knowing that they need Jesus, happily and boldly affirm their weakness. They are happy to let people see transparently that they need Jesus. The result of this is that we project a desirable image. And the byproduct of this, I would argue, is that now we expect more of technology than we do of people. Right? Like, when's the last time you called someone out on their sin? When's the last time you risked your friendship to point out that someone is in risk of sin and rebelling against God? Now, when's the last time you cursed at your phone for when it didn't work? When's the last time you called customer service because your laptop or your phone or, or your, your cell service didn't work? See the difference? We've gotten to where now we have a, a higher expectation of our technology than we do of people and relationships. This is a barrier to sharing the gospel. And the end result of doing this is utter loneliness. And our greatest fear then becomes actual intimacy because we're afraid of being hurt. We expect to always be heard and we are obsessed with convincing people that we have it all figured out. 
friend, these are barriers to the gospel being believed. You see, evangelism is not optional. So here's the way I would land it with three different things. First one, this is what the Bible tells us at the end here. It says, share the gospel. Go now. Seriously. Now. Don't wait. No, seriously. Go now. Did did you catch that? Three different times it mentioned that they did not believe. Did you catch that? They had trouble believing. After these things, he appeared, and it says that they did not believe them in verse 13. Uh, It also says in verse 11, and afterward Jesus appeared, and as, as he was reclining at the table in verse 14, it says he rebuked them. Why? Because they didn't believe. So there, someone sold you a bill of goods. There is a myth out there that you have to be an expert about things of Jesus to share the good news of Jesus. Here is a complete debunking of that myth. Did you catch that? Jesus commanded people to preach the gospel who had trouble believing it themselves. Jesus commands you to preach the gospel even though some days it is difficult to do so. You don't even believe it. So go now. He sends them off. They didn't believe. Can I, can I share with you this and brag on what God does? I'm doing this right now. Some of you in this room, I have baptized. Some of you, I am discipling. Some of my, you, I'm coaching to disciple others. And it is not because I am the best one in the room. It is not because I am the expert. And maybe the best thing you can hear me say is that I have very deep doubts. There are some days I wake up and I know very clearly I don't have anything together. And it's only the enemy deceiving me that I do. And I hope that you should be able to see that God is currently using me in spite of all of the obvious flaws that you can now see in me. So it, at the very least, look and go, hey, look, if this guy can stand up here and talk about Jesus and it seems to be doing something, then God can use you. You don't have to have it figured out. You simply share. So to the Christians in the room, someone started this rumor that you have to have all the answers to all the questions about Jesus before you open your mouth about Jesus. And that's a lie, and I want to point to you that that's cowardice because you do this anywhere else. If you don't believe me, we are a group of people in our culture right now who are self-proclaimed experts on everything. Let me give you an example. If right now I told you that the essential oils that you've used or consumed or had on you right now are actually like ineffective at doing anything, they would bother you. You would be angry because you're an expert on these things. But if I told you, hey, share the gospel, you'd go, whoa, 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 hey, people might disagree with me. If I told you that some of your, right now you're self-proclaimed experts on everything, right? We're, we are self-proclaimed experts. We're like, none of us have been to med school, but we all think we're doctors and smarter than doctors. We're experts on physical fitness, nutrition, gun control, parenting, you name it, vaccines, breastfeeding. We're experts on it and we will tell people if they disagree with us. But listen, that that enthusiasm that you now have is occupying a space meant for Jesus. That enthusiasm that you have is is good. Be excited about that thing. But please be more excited about the gospel. So that when you see people and they're misled, I know know they're misled about vaccines. I know they're wrong about essential oils. I know they're wrong about their, their parenting style. I get it. But if for the moment would you see that their greatest need is not for you to correct them on that thing, their greatest need is for you to share this good news. And then, in the process of making a believer and disciple in Jesus, if you say, hey, by the way, I think you should invest in this thing, do that. But start with the good news. Now, seriously, do it. The second thing we see is that it's accompanied by great acts of the Spirit. All I have to say is in this very room, there are people right now with healed marriages, healed relationships, and some of you, God, is doing some amazing things. 
And then the last thing we see is that the Lord will work and confirm the message. You don't have to do it. All you have to do is share it. That last word is sunerguntos. It's the, where, it's the place where we get the most overused corporate word in America, synergy. You get a chance to use it for real. When you share the gospel, you have synergy with Jesus. So here's where we land. There are obstacles, yes, but Jesus has done something that overflows in us in a miraculous way. Jesus has accomplished something for us. And the end of the gospel is the mission. Let now the good news that Jesus has redeemed you overflow. Realize that you don't have to have a high view of yourself. In fact, the lower view of yourself, the greater you'll realize you need Jesus and the more you'll share it. You have to have a high view of who God is and how great and awful sin is before him. So for you in this room, take heart. Jesus has done something for you. And now that you have heard this good news, now that you have been a part of reading through this good news according to the gospel of Mark, share it. Share it. Find someone. Find someone you know. Think of someone right now who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's living away rebellious against God, and ask yourself this question. Who's going to tell that person the good news of Jesus' love and reconciliation? Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? And I would argue the fact that you know it means the answer is you. Take this good news as a humble and broken person who struggles to believe just like this disciple. Take it to the lost and see what God does. He will confirm it. He will do it. And we will marvel not at you and your skills and your perfection, but at the mercy of God on you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for all of the ways in which you have redeemed and saved us before we were even aware that we needed it. We thank you that you have shown your kindness to us such that now all we have left to do is to celebrate and to let it overflow to the people around us. We thank you so much that you saw fit to use broken and uh, incompetent and inadequate people to accomplish this mission. We thank you so much that you saw fit to even use this broken church to do it. I thank you for the ways in which people, even in this room, are experiencing this good news and being changed by it. So God, give us and instill in us a powerful sense of conviction that this good news is now the message that we are meant to share. Renew us with a sense of enthusiasm that you have saved us and redeemed us. Help us to identify all the obstacles that work against this happening and help us to destroy them in the name of Jesus and help us to see the model that is in this text that we are to go, we're to go even when we have doubts. We're to go to the people whom we know and we are to go immediately and we are to not stop until you return. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.